Now, I got to ask you, the moment they said you are no longer a danger to society and you know that you're now freedom is within your grasp. What does that feel like? Oh, my God, I broke down and I cried. Like this to see like, man, these people like. In a weird sense, say I could fit back into society. Hi, I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Hey, everyone. Nick Nanton here. Welcome back to Now to Next. I've got a guest that I can't wait to get into his story here with you today. Because I choose to use a two-shot to begin with, you can see him anyway, so it's sort of awkward to talk about him without welcoming him. So, uh, Quan, <laughs> welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Thank you for having me, Nick. Doing well. Good, good. I'm, I'm excited to have you. We are here to talk about an amazing book you have coming out called Sparrow and the Razor Wire. And I'm really excited to talk about that. And just to hear your story and share your story uh, of hope in the end, which is a story that most wouldn't assume ends with hope. So I'm going to give a brief background real quick. I'll read a brief bio we put together and then we'll dig into the interview. So here you go. Quan Wen is the post-release program manager at Defy Ventures, a nonprofit in Southern California that provides opportunities for entrepreneurship, leadership, and career development to men and women with criminal histories. His book, Sparrow and the Razor Wire, Finding Freedom from Within While Serving a Life Sentence, came out on September 15th. The book covers Quan's story beginning in 1999 when he received a prison sentence of 15 years to life for killing another man in a gang-related incident. At the time, California did not parole prisoners with life sentences, and Quan continued his downward spiral behind bars, which we'll talk about. But instead of this being the end for Quan, he discovered a new path while being incarcerated, one that led him to commit to self-reflection, truth, and personal responsibility. Sparrow and the Razor Wire tells Quan's incredible story of transformation from inside a place that many see as the end of the road. In his book, he shares his story of redemption and discovery that led to his ultimate freedom. Quan's story is inspiring and can help people who are feeling stuck realize that a change in perspective can help you find the positives no matter your situation. Once again, Quan, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So your book just came out. So first thing everyone here needs to do is to go buy the book, Spare on the Razor Wire. We're going to dig into some of the stories here today. From my reading, it's an incredible book uh, that would be really helpful for anyone in any life situation. But certainly there's many loved ones you can think that you might feel are a little bit stuck and you're not sure how to help them. I know Quan's experiences are going to help them. So Quan, your family moved uh, from Vietnam to America when you were very young. So uh, I would imagine you don't even remember living in Vietnam, correct? I do not. We came here when I was just only a few months old. Got it. And so you essentially were American, uh, but you came right after the Vietnam War. Your family sort of came in during that. What sort of childhood did that, did that cause any problems as you were growing up? Uh, yeah, we, well, we settled here in, um, in the United States. We settled in Provo, Utah. So, uh, yeah, over there, 99% of my peers or 99% of our neighbors were all white. And because of uh, the Vietnam War, I do remember uh, some instances of what I now know to be racism. Um, you know, the vast majority of people in Utah are very kind and, and, and loving, but there are some uh, incidents as a, as a boy growing up, I, I distinctly remember. Uh, I remember going to like the gas station with my uncle and some people pulling up and uh, telling us, go back to your country, goops, get out of here. 
I also remember when uh, my brother and I got beat up by some older kids at the um, at a creek we were playing with their GI Joes. I was eight, and he was six. Well, I say we got beat up. It was my brother got beat up. They put dirt in his mouth, and I stood there. And I didn't. I just watched. I was too scared to to do anything. And uh, we went home, and then uh, my father's found out what happened and just said like, you know, why did you let this happen to your younger brother? Um, you're supposed to protect your family. And yeah, so I remember just feeling ashamed and like I let down my family behind all that. Got it. And so what age were you then moved to California? How old are you when you moved to California? We moved out to California when I was 10 because my father got diagnosed with leukemia when I was about eight. His condition started to get worse. So he wanted to move out here where some of his family lived. Got it. And so that's where you live today, obviously, now uh, as well in Southern California. Yeah. The age of 10, I remember distinctly uh, where I started sort of 10, 12, 13 are, are some of my earliest memories other than like playing on a swing set or whatever. I start I start to have deep memories of relational circumstances with people who uh, who loved me and I loved them and people who didn't love me. Uh, and, you know, middle school is like a is a cruel place. Right. In middle school, mm-hmm. I, I say Satan lives in the seventh grade. He never moves. <laughs> he just stays right in the middle of middle school just to keep to chop things up all the time. Once you got to California, uh, was that any better? I mean, you would think California is, is a more diverse state than Utah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, that's the first time I went to school with African-Americans and Hispanics and other Vietnamese kids. But during that time, that was like the when there were quite a bit of refugees that were fleeing the country. So a lot of their um, parents were the kids that were enrolled they didn't speak english well and i didn't speak vietnamese well so these kids would poke fun at me and said oh this kid is whitewashed and i also feel like i didn't fit in uh, during those yeah the seventh grade years there's always a part of me like yeah something's wrong i don't i don't fit in in this world yeah that's a tough situation so you don't feel like you fit in with the american kids they're making fun of you and then the vietnamese kids are making fun of you as well I imagine that starts to be really confusing for a kid at that age of wondering, where do I fit in? Do I fit in anywhere? So did you find a small group of friends or like, what did you do to cope with that? Yeah, uh, there were, were, like, don't get me wrong. There were some small groups of friends. There were a lot of people that still, like I look back now, there were actually quite a lot of people that really liked me. But I think it's just, but it's just the random incidents where I'm poked fun at and and just how I, I let that really dictate of how I saw myself in the world. My father ends up passing away from leukemia when I was 13, right before I went into high school. And that just devastated our whole family. Yeah, he, he, he passed away on the day of our first communion. Uh, I, I was, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic and I believe that on the day of my communion, I'm gonna be able to pray and my father's, God is gonna grant my prayer. And I wake up that morning and my younger sister tells me that dad had died the night before. So, you know, in, in my young mind at that time, I just thought, you know, God healed my dad just so he wouldn't have to grant my prayer because there is something wrong with me. Um, and that's where that, you know, that, that seed of doubt continued to just grow inside me. Well, and we're obviously going to continue with your story, but I, I love to try to figure out, you know, you going through that scenario. There's obviously there are plenty of people in the world going through scenarios like that. For those of us who haven't been through that scenario, uh, what might have helped you during that time? If I saw someone t- today in a scenario like yours, what might have reached you during that time if someone had seen it and had tried to reach you? I think what 
might have reached is to just ask me like how I'm feeling or, or, or what is going on. Because, you know, when I look back now, when my father passed away, it was never, we never talked about it. Like my family, my mom, the, uh, the adults, we didn't talk about it anymore. Um, no one ever asked how I was doing. Yeah, it was just dad's passed away. My mom doesn't talk about it. Me and my brother and sister, we don't talk about it. I mean, I even see it to this day. It still plays out a little bit in the family dynamics when it comes up about the subject of my father. I see that some of my own family members have not been able to mourn or grieve his death yet. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. We're all in different places in life, no matter what we're dealing with. And I was just talking with my mom the other day, actually, and we were talking about some scenarios I remember. A particular teacher in grade school telling me I was stupid one day, and another teacher in high school. And and I really, I try to look back now and and, and try to obviously let go of a lot of those things. But so many scenarios like this are, they just happen because of where they were at, at that day, at that time, at that. And those things can grow and fester. Obviously, the loss of a loved one dealing with the, I'm sure your mom, the death of a husband, like super difficult. So I'm not not equating it to that. But I just find as I'm starting to you know, learn and discover even more in my life, I find that there's so many people in so many situations that happen that are that really impacted me that I guarantee if I talk to the person on the other side, they would never remember that day or that moment in their life. Right. But but yeah. because it happened to me and I internalized it, I sort of carried a chip. Like, I can't believe this person did this to me. Right. And, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you, you've had many similar scenarios. Now, when you get into a scenario like that, you can withdraw or you can, or you can connect. And I think most of us try to find a way, you know, just as human beings to find a group of people where we can fit in. And it sounds like the next thing was you're sort of lost. You've, you've lost your father. It's really not being dealt with at home. Uh, great advice. Just ask someone how they're feeling about something. Uh, or if you're in a situation where no one is asking you how you're feeling about something, go find someone to talk to. There are, I mean, there's hotlines, there's professionals, there's, you know, there's even government provided professionals or even just a friend. Sometimes a friend won't pick up on something because you're hiding it so well. So, so talk, that's great advice to begin with. When do you start hanging around with the wrong crowd? I had a couple of friends. Well, I mean, I would say the wrong crowd was probably right into high school. I had some friends from junior high who had some older brothers, you know, they had cars. We, I was a freshman and, uh, Got, got to hang out with them and um, these older these older brothers I thought were the coolest dudes. I mean, they had the nicest uh, stereo systems in their car, had pretty women around them, and we got to go in the cars with them. But then uh, it was hanging out with them where I broke into a car for the first time. I went with them one night and they broke into a car and they started showing me, oh, this is what this is how you do it, and that's just where it began, taking car stereos and then leading into breaking into other cars and getting wallets and using credit cards. And it just becomes more and more like normalized in my life. Why, by, by the time I'm a senior in high school, this is a group of friends that, you know, now we're kind of running on the street together. We kind of back each other up and we had problems with a local uh, skinhead uh, gang that went to a continuation school nearby. So my friends, by that time they had a gun and we just, brought that everywhere with us and it was an incident about probably um there's one night we were at a house party and we were totally outnumbered but my friend pulls out the gun and everybody runs and suddenly oh wow look at the power that we get from this gun here um and and then it added to our reputation and people say oh Quan and his brother and his friends those those guys are crazy they they carry a gun and 
we just thought, oh yeah, this is this is what's happening. Um, and then I ended up being arrested for the first time at 17 when um, that same group of skinheads had called my house, threatened to kill my mom and my sister. My brother comes to tell me about it and I was working at Subway. They said they'll come back to pick me up that night at 10 o'clock. I got off work at 10 o'clock, I went home. My brother was laying in bed. I think my brother was 15 at the time, terrified, said that my friends had found a skinhead's house, ran inside and had shot three people in there. Fortunately, they all survived, but within a few weeks, we were all arrested and uh, charged with uh, three attempted murder. So seven, at 17 years old, it was my first arrest. You know, they threw the book at us. So did you go in the house as well, or you were just... Uh, I was not there. I was not there. Um, they arrested me because they said I was part of the original conspiracy when we talked about this. They, when they came, my brother told me about the skinheads. And so I asked my coworker, hey, do you know where they live? And she drew me a map. I gave it to them. They didn't use the map. They went to a local arcade where we like to go play our video games. And there was another kid there that knew where they lived. So he got in the car with my friends and he showed where they lived. And that's when my friend ran in. But because I had asked for that map um, and provided the map to them when we were all there plotting. They said we all plotted. It was a conspiracy uh, that I should have known what happened because our group had a gun. So that was my first arrest, which just, for me, it just reinforced, you know what? I got screwed over by the world. I got screwed over by the American justice system and inside juvenile hall and, and the county jail during that time. I think, no, not, I think I know that's where my criminality got worse and I got more enmeshed in the street and the gang culture. When you're arrested for attempted murder, I mean, you know, I, when I was reading your story, I was like, you know, most people, when they get into crime, their first arrest is not the first arrest is not for attempted murder. I mean, it's that like yeah. that was that was shocking to me. And so where did they send you when you get arrested for something like that? Uh, I was charged as an adult. So uh, they sent me to the county jail at 17. I was held in the juvenile section. Then ultimately, when I, uh, I pled guilty to conspiracy to commit a crime, by that time I was in the uh, in the jail for a while already, I ended up getting seven years, and they sent me up to the California Youth Authority, which is basically, uh, a, a, you know, it's known as the gladiator school, where all the, the young, tough kids and thugs are sent. And so that became its own breeding ground. I've interviewed multiple people who have spent quite a bit of time behind bars, but I'm still blown away by what it's like its own society within there. I mean, yeah. tell, tell us a bit about the day to day in there and what the people were like and, and even the crimes that you're committed within that system all the time. It, it is. It's its own society, it's its own culture. We have to live by certain rules in there where everything is about image. Everything is about reputation. And the only way to gain is through acts of violence on each other or you have to live up to this image and you can't let anybody, you know, what we thought back then was called disrespect us. So a lot of it is actually fear-based and, and nobody wants to be victimized. So to make sure to not be victimized, they usually victimize others or do acts of violence upon others. The California system is split up by race. So right when I went inside, my group, the people I'm supposed to hang out with were Asians and, you know, the whites over here, the blacks over there, the Hispanics over there. So of course we were basically outnumbered every place I've ever been. So I knew for us, our mentality was like, okay, we can't let anybody pick on us. So if it ever comes to that, we have to be the first to go above and beyond to make sure people know that 
that they can't mess with us. And it just, yeah, it was, it's a, it was, those were some very violent, dark days back then. I have no doubt. And so after that, um, you spent a couple of years in prison, uh, imprisoned, and then you're released on parole in 1993. And, and where do you go next? You, you get, that's gotta be a tough place. You're still young, but you're getting out of jail. You have a record. And so what do you do next? I did what I knew best is I just tried to enroll in college, but now I, you know, I enrolled at a local community college, but yes, I'm, I'm a convicted felon. By that time I realized I'm not sure if I can get a job or I have to hide my record and my past from people. I made some friendships over the years inside. And those are the, you know, my buddies inside that we had done time together. And I felt that's, these are the only guys that could understand me. So those are the ones I reconnect with. Those are the ones I hang out with. And those are actually the ones that form the core part of our gang later on. Okay, so so you go and it's not unusual. You go into the system and you get out of the system, but you understand what you understand the way of life within the system probably better than you understand the way of life outside the system. And so you you enroll in college, but you still you still decide to interact with gangs. So what do you guys do now? Like you've obviously seen the results of what happens hanging out with these kind of people. But so what did you, what was your new gang or did you just get back with the same old gang or, or how did that work? Yeah, it was this, 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 my group of friends that later on became our gang is like, by that time we didn't call ourselves gang. We just like, okay, this is our group of friends, but we all were locked up at one time or another. Or we've done times we, there's this, there's this shared brotherhood and bond. And then, so we'll just hang out with each other. We'll go to the pool halls. We'll go to the clubs or whatever but then run into other groups, other gangs, end up getting into fights or, or, you know, end up getting into altercations with people. And then that's just kind of forms like what, oh, it's this group versus that group. And it's still that same mentality that we carried inside prison. And now we're carrying it out to the streets. And then people suddenly know, okay, this group does this. And then the other gangs bring guns. So now we know we have to bring and get guns to bring into it. And suddenly it's, it's a totally different ball game that we're playing on the streets now. So were you guys still, obviously you were, you were sort of hanging together and moving around together, but were, did you get a job or were you still stealing and getting into other things to make money? I did get a job. I ended up uh, getting a job at like several jobs here and there. I think like Home Depot and like some seasonal jobs. But then I, I ended up getting a job at the, the Gallup organization. Yep. And this is like before the fame of their strength finder studies. They were already using their strength finder studies in all of us in their interviews, but it was just never published. But uh, yeah, I ended up working there and it's always um, all their interviews is personality based and they just see if you are a fit for these positions. So, yeah, I was one of their top interviewers when I was working there. But yet there was still another part of my life that enjoyed the street life and these were my friends and these were guys that I felt understood me because in college, yes, I, I did well, but then when I'm around people that aspire to, you know, they say, Oh, I, I, my plan is to do this and to go to this college and then, get, and then go to this, this job and this company and me in the back of my head, like, how am I going to measure up to this? How am I even I enroll in college now? And this is just to put off the inevitable part of now getting into a company but then in the back of my mind, even if I get a degree, what about when I apply for a company and my background check comes up? They're not going to hire me. Is this a waste of time in college? Like what's really going to happen? So there was always that self-doubt in there. That's understandable self-doubt. Do you think there's anything that could be done better 
education wise? I, I mean, I guess you're working with an organization out to five ventures who help people get over that hump. Uh, yeah. What, so it sounds like there's nobody there to sort of help you through that transition. There, there wasn't. And these, you know, and I think a lot of it could have was in my mind was part of stuff created was way worse than it really was. It was worry about applying myself now. And, and, but I didn't, it was just always something inevitable in the future. I think, Oh, this is going to happen. I'm thinking the worst case scenario. Right. You're creating the scenario in your mind before it even happens. Uh, totally makes sense. So you actually won 1998 interviewer of the year award at Gallup, but you're in a gang. Like this is, these are two like split personalities, you know, like, like great employee. And then let me, so follow all the rules at work to be great and then go to college and then go home and break all the rules. But there, you know, it it reminds me my brother, uh, Andy, who's a psychiatrist. He says, there's a reason people are addicted to slot machines and not vending machines. And part of the allure <laughs> of, of the vending of the slot machine is just part of the lifestyle you were talking about. You never know what's going to happen. It's very predictable what ha- what's going to happen at work if you do your job well, what's gonna, you're going to get your degree, unpredictable what you're going to do after that. But you were burying, it sounds like, you know, the concern. And instead of facing that head on, you just found another place to invest that energy. At one point, you went up for a managerial position, but you lost it solely because of the way they judge on personality. And this seems like a a real breaking point for you. Tell me how that felt. Uh, After I got the 1998 interview of the year award, uh, they had asked me to uh, interview for a management position. And I remember thinking, this is finally, my life is going to go right for once. And, you know, um, things are going to fall in order. And I I can, I'm going to be fine after this. I took the interview, which was also personality based and about, I can't remember about a month, month and a half later, they came back and they said, we're sorry, but uh, you are not a fit. And that's just the exact words they use. And, but that's just the vocabulary they use in Gallup, you know, and, and how they say things. But for myself, those words shook a part of my core where I don't fit in. I still don't fit in. And I didn't deal well with that. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, I was ashamed. Like, yeah, I got turned down. But more importantly, back up to that point in my life, I could blame everything else. So I like this happened because of this outside. I couldn't get this because of this. But now I couldn't blame anything on why I couldn't get this job because they said I wasn't a fit. So it was more something wrong with me. That's what I felt in my head. So within about a week, week and a half, I, I you know, on the flip side of it, I know how to deal with these emotions inside and I need this, this sense of excitement and I need to, need to vent these emotions inside. And I didn't tell anybody about it. I called up some of my uh, gang associates and said, hey, let's go to uh, the club up in L.A. So we went up to a club up in Los Angeles, brought my gun along, came out of the club that night, found out some of my friends had gotten into a fight with a group of guys from a different gang. And then from there, it was me orchestrating and leading following them onto the freeway where we waited until there were no cars around and we drove next to them and we ambushed and I, I shot and I killed one human being by the name of Minduin and injured a couple others in the car. That must've been, I mean, obviously that, that is the seminal moment that changed your life and, and ultimately in a beautiful way leads you to here. But obviously that happened in, in the heat of the moment. Did you shoot and run and then get like, what was the process? What happened once you guys shot someone and then did you speed off? Like, tell me about the next, the next hours. There was another car that 
because the other gang was following like some of our uh some of our homegirls like some of the girls that uh, the women that hung out with us and the the women were like okay they're following us out so i was coordinating okay what freeway are you at what exit are you at until i caught up and i saw their car and then when we didn't see any more cars that's when i told my dr driver of my car to speed up I went, shot into the car, aimed at the left rear passenger because I figured this is the only person, if they have a gun, this is the one I could shoot back at us right now. So that's the main one I have to hit first. And that's who I aimed at. And that's who I ultimately um, ended up murdering. Uh, we took off. Maybe five minutes later is when the women called in and they said, hey, those guys aren't following us anymore. So that's when I realized, oh, they didn't even know that we had just shot at the other car. So I didn't, I told everyone in the car, don't tell them what happened. The women wanted to meet up to go eat at a, um, at a, a cafe. That's usually what we used to do after um, a club night. And I just, I told everyone in the car, hey, how about we just go there? And I, everyone just get out of the car and I just take off home because I know I just shot somebody. I went, so we went, dropped them off. I went home. I didn't tell anybody about it. The next morning, we found out somebody had died the night before. And the, the people in that other car had actually taken down the license plate of the women's car because like in the gang life I know like they took it down because they were going to say okay next time we go to a club where we see this car we're going to follow this group of people that we're going to uh, have have problems with but they had the, the license plate they gave it to the police and the police ran the plates they knew it was our one of our homegirls they raided her house and that's when we knew the investigation was on. So they knew it was our gang. They didn't know who was involved or what. So that's when I knew, okay, I got to get rid of this gun. I got to, so I went to talk to her. I talked to everyone else. Like, this is what you have to say when they come. Just plead the fifth. You didn't see anything, right? And that's how I, I talked them through it. So it was about um, four or five minutes later is when they did a, a gang raid and took us all in for, for several different shootings in Orange County. And then that's when they said that I was going to be taken up to Los Angeles to be tried for the death penalty. And I knew, okay, this, they're taking me up, up to that one. And so when you shot, did you know you had killed someone instantly or you just shot and kept moving and had no idea? I knew for sure I had hit him uh, because, you know, I, I, by that time I was like in my mind, like, okay, I, I knew I was good with the gun and I used to practice it all the time. I go to the gun ranges. So I, I knew like, okay, there's, there's no doubt. It was, to me, at the time, I remember thinking, this is just another silhouette. This is easy. And and for sure, I got him. I didn't know that he, he had died until the next day. And so I guess one has to wonder, I guess your life, your thought process, you could tell me, was so twisted by that point. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. these guys are driving, following some girls, and you just you decide the best method of dealing with this right now is, is to shoot into the car. Like, what mm -hmm. what gets you to that point? Well, my, I mean, my, my, that, was, that was my mind. It's twisted. It was like, okay. I could be a failure in this part of my life, but I know how to excel in the game part of my life. And this is where, you know, I can gain this recognition. And this is how I could still feed into my reputation as being one of the most violent, ruthless gang members on the street. And, and you know, in my head, like, who, how dare these guys, don't they know who we are? How, how dare they, after they already, we already fought with them to try to uh, intimidate our, our, our homegirls and, and our gang. Um, so all of that was in my head. And then by that time, I didn't look at people as living, breathing human beings anymore. It's just anybody outside my group was, okay, this is a target for me. This is for someone for me to take my anger out on and my, my frustration. That's just how I looked at it. So how long be between 
the night when you shot them and then when you were arrested? How what was the period of time between that? I think it was about four or five months. Oh wow. So it was a while. So I mean, that has to be interesting. Were you you obviously were living in a twisted state, but you are human. Were you looking over your shoulder, being super anxious during that time, or did you just pretend nothing yeah. was happening? Or well, I, I I pretended like nothing was happening in, in to everyone outside me. But yeah, I was super anxious. I became very paranoid. I I saw cars that were following me all the time, and my my girlfriend at the time said like, "There's something wrong with you. You know, like you're you're paranoid." But it was later on during when we got arrested. Then it was you know that they had people police that were following us and were telling us to see who was doing what but um so but i know i think I, I i probably imagined a lot more people following me than there really was it was just always driving i see a car headlights and also on top of that on the flip side of that not only police that when i see other cars coming up on the left side of me on a freeway or if i'm driving i'm thinking crap someone's coming to shoot me right now and i and i just tense up so it was some very dark times so all this, just to remind everyone, is in the brand new book that's just out that Quan wrote, Sparrow and the Razor Wire. Be sure to check it out. Our friend John Briggs that connected us actually uh, posted a, a link in the comments here. If anyone's watching, you can grab uh, the book on Amazon. So please do support the book, all these stories. And we're, get, we're getting into the hope. Don't worry. Uh, so you go to trial and you say you didn't do it, right? That You say, no, that wasn't me. I lied at trial and I already got rid of evidence. Uh, one of the passengers in my car had turned state's evidence, so he got on the stand to testify against me. Um, they gave him immunity because he was testifying against the whole gang for other things. And um, so I felt, you know what? I know the best way to get out of this is to say, you know, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. He's the one that did it. He's trying to get out of it. I had no idea he had a gun in the car. Uh, and so I got on the stand and I lied. Um, the jury actually believed that I was not the shooter. They felt that he was the shooter because he just lied on a bunch of unnecessary stuff that I, that I knew he would lie on. And um, they found me guilty of second degree murder. And that's when I was sentenced to 15 years to life, which at the same at that time was basically the same as a death sentence anyway, because California was not paroling anybody with a life term prison. You get to prison now for the however, dozenth time or whatever. You've sort of been in and out, in and out. We talked about a couple of them, but there's been there were other instances of probably minor, more minor arrests and things. So you've been part of this system forever. But I assume you go to a different jail or a different part of jail now that this is what you have been convicted of. Is that true? Yeah, I now went into the California prison system. They ended up sending me to Pelican Bay State Prison which back then was uh, notorious for housing the most uh, violent gang members in California. That's, that prison was known for the, the most high-profile gang members. They're sending up that way. And that was like its own, that's its own ugly place of where everybody gets up there. And my mindset was, you know what, if these are going to be the most violent gang members in the state of California, I want to be able to prove why I can fit right in here. And I think that was everybody's mindset up there. Tell me about some of the things you remember happening in there. Again, uh, its own economy. It's uh, it says you know, I read that you were involved in gambling and drugs in prison. Like people, I mean, people like me have never been in there. How do they even allow gambling? How do you get drugs in and out? Tell, tell us how that works. My first monkey there was running the parlay tickets, the gambling racket. So he really gave me a good rundown on how it's. And he, by that time, he had already been in prison like 20 years. He had a life without possibility parole sentence. The prison was actually locked down at the time because 
some of the prisoners had plotted a um, an attack on the staff where they were going to run into into the administrator's office and attack like some of the high-ranking officers and the warden and everything and stab them. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly happened, but when I hit that that yard, we were all locked down. Um, I remember going to Chow and eating because we were hungry, but that's the first time I see an officer right above us in the catwalk with the mini 14 ready to shoot at us while we're eating. And so for me, I didn't want to show up to Chow because I didn't want to get shot, but I had to show up because I didn't want anyone to know I was scared. Uh, plus, that's where our food is. And but the whole time I'm just eating and shoveling food into my mouth, afraid that something's going to break out and happen. And then they're going to start shooting and bullets, a straight bullet's going to hit me. So I was more afraid of getting shot than, than, or should I be more afraid of this guy trying to stab me? Or, yeah, it was, it was a, another dark time. You certainly uh, experienced quite a few of those. While you were there the whole time, did that reality ever happen for anyone else? Did they shoot at a lot of people or is that just something you were afraid of? It was something I was afraid of. It didn't, it happened right before I got up. There was a really big riot that happened. I think they still even have it on YouTube where if you look up Pelican Bay riots and that, I think that riot went on for like an hour, hour and a half where the officers could not stop people from stabbing each other on a yard. And I had heard about like people that just saw that experienced it or that were not even involved. I know it was between the Hispanics and the blacks um, and both sides attacked each other. But then when the officers lay one group down, then then they're over there shooting at another group. And then uh, this group would get back up and, and, and wow. attack again. And like there were people just on like there was uh, even like one of the Asians I know when I met him, he seemed off. And my bunkhead told me he was normal. He was just a normal kid until that riot happened. And for him to see and experience like all the gunshots going off and, and, and the smoke and the tear gas and just endless people screaming and, and, and dying all around him because the officers couldn't even stop the riots. Because once they get on the, you know, the riot happens, they'll shoot a couple to make people lay down. But then when the officers get onto the yard to start zip tying and handcuffing people back up, then these guys can get up and start fighting again. Because now if there's officers on the yard, the ones in the gun tower can't really shoot. They don't have clear lines of view. And that was wow. part of like, yeah, so that, yeah, that was a pretty big riot at, um, that happened back then. Got it. So you're you're into gambling and drugs, and about ten years in, you have a moment that that makes you reexamine your life. Tell us about that moment. Yeah. So leading up to that moment, it was like around my younger brother had a daughter. So my darling little niece, I saw her picture for the first time when they sent it in the mail, and I saw like, oh my goodness, she looks just like my brother, and it just took me back to my childhood and. And, and I said, what am I doing here? Like, what happened to my life? How did it end up like this? Why am I in this place? My father's father, my grandfather passes away that year too. And then it also reminded me about my father. Um, and then I started thinking like, my father died like when he was like 37, 38, around there. By that time I was like 35. And, I'm, and I started contrasting like my life with his, like what he created in this world. And impact and what he was doing already and then i thought of my own life of you know pain and death and destruction and i go how did i end up here fortunately you know i have always been a bookworm and that is how i got my mini escape from prison and i've always been fascinated with different types of books during that time though um i always loved business books but during that time i was reading like this this series of books which lead me to another series and i ended up uh beginning to read books on the saints 
particularly stories that told about saints before they became the saints. And I was very drawn to certain stories of these other human beings that had also had their own failures in life, but then yet, how did they turn this around and then become saints? And those stories just resonated with me. And then, of course, from there, it leads me into, uh, I'm also fascinated with books about mindfulness and books on personal development. So these all became like their own perfect storm of thinking of a different way of, of viewing life. One morning on a prison yard, I was standing at the fence and my head was just filled up with these readings and my meditation that morning. And I asked myself, like, why does prison have to be punishment? Why can't this be a place where I can make myself a better person, even if I'm supposed to die? And that's when I realized I could. And, you know, just that small, subtle shift in thinking made all the difference in the world. But I, I, I felt the warmth of the sun when it was just barely peeking over the hills. And in the individual blades of grass, I saw the drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. Um, and I tell you what, it's probably been chirping my whole prison term, but I'd never heard it. But that day I heard it. And from that day, like I realized prison was no longer punishment. I viewed the men around me. Like now I saw them as human beings. I saw them as they are also on their journey. You know, many of them further along than me and many of them that had not even awakened yet. But then I looked at this place that I was at, like this is only temporary and I can still make myself a better person while I'm here. And suddenly prison was no longer punishment. Prison, it just became, you know, a place of where I found like such a sense of liberation. And, and um, you know, I tell people it was like a tranquil sense of beauty in it where I found beauty like in the, the sun, nature around me, the little sparrows and, and the birds and just other people. And it just, I, I, I just felt at peace for once in my life. What a perspective, too. I mean, there's many times when we all feel trapped and we're not nearly as trapped as you were there, but you found a way to make the best of the situation and use it as a as a forced, uh, a quarantine betterment program, right? Uh, mm -hmm. a way to use current language. At that point, what happened to like your friends? Obviously, you were up to that point. On some level, you were living to be one of the hardest, baddest guys in the prison. Had you gained enough respect to no one messed with you at this point? Or did they, your friends who you're in prison gangs, I would imagine with all of a sudden, like what happened to Quan? Like, what was that process like? So right around that time, yeah, I mean, by the time I got to that last prison, I basically held the gambling rackets for like, and it was like the way we had, because most prisons, like if someone does the gambling racket, there might be two or three guys on that yard that will run two or three different type of tickets. But I had been able to basically close off the whole, I ran that whole yard. I ran that whole yard. And then I also expanded our racket into a couple other yards. And then, you know, I had the connection for tobacco, the, the phones, the drugs. So when it was at that time when I said, you know, what, I think I'm done with this. I went right to like our group. And, you know, by that time I'd been in enough and and the guys respect me long enough where it's not like okay i'm not going out backwards i'm not saying i'm done with this stuff and i'm telling where every connection is i actually went to my own group of guys who wants the connection for this who wants to learn how to run this i am handing this all to you all i am done with it and that way they had to respect it and i said this is the way i'm walking um but i'm not going to be involved with with bringing this in i will give you all the connections this is all you guys 
to to take care of from here on out. And, and you call it a gambling racket. Like, what does that mean? What What were you doing? Like, what, how did the gambling work? Well, let's say, okay, let's say there's football season, right? So um, I have my phone. I could see all the parlay tickets. And I set up, let's say, okay, they pick, let's say someone bets at $50. And they have to pick at least a four pick. Um, and if they pick a four pick, I set it up where they can win nine times their money if they pick exactly the four teams that's going to win with the odds that I have. But I, I, I mean, I stacked it in my favor. I mean, if you're if someone pick, taking four bets, they should be getting 16 to one. I'm only paying them out nine to one. And plus I already have the odds where it's any tie is a loss. So it's like minus seven, minus three or plus three. So if they choose any of those, they lose. And then I have the over under, it's not an exact number, but I have a small range. So we just set it up like that. We had, it was pretty elaborate where there was a person that worked in the program office. He printed up the tickets off Excel. We pass it out that I have runners where th their job is just to sell the tickets. Um, they get 20% of whatever they pull in and they get me the numbers and I just put it all like, okay, this is where all the bets is. This is where what comes in and I can look at my sheet and I know who gets paid out. And that's just, yeah. So everybody got to hustle and everybody got to eat and, and I looked at, oh, I'm just providing something of value for people in here because everyone loves to gamble. But yeah, so every building had its own runner and they they were all were coordinated and they knew, okay, they have to give me the numbers by Saturday night by 11 p.m. They have to text me all the, the ticket numbers and who's betting where so I could just see at a glance. So yeah, we ran that whole um, the whole thing with that. So did people actually get paid what they were owed when they won or was, did that disappear? Yes. Okay. No, just, I mean, that, that's just terrible. Yeah, the odds are terrible. I mean, but I always make sure, like, we told the guy, like, you know, because a lot of them, they just bet, like, small stuff. They bet with, like, things that we, they bark, that we eat with, like, our food, like, tuna cans and soups and stuff like that. But the bigger guys would bet with, like, Western Union numbers and whatever they're betting, we cover it. So I think I was known to make sure that because if someone owes a debt and is not paying it, that's where, that's where violence happens. That's why people get stabbed or that's where, but, I just always make sure. And I think it just became dangerous because if they do wrong on the tickets or you give the wrong line and everyone jumps on it and then lose, you could end up being losing pretty big. If you can't cover it, you're in big trouble. Got that. And not a place you want to be in any further trouble. That's that's not a, bad, a good place to be. The other thing that is surprising to me, and again, I, I've never been in jail, thankfully, but you said, oh, I had my phone. I could check all the numbers. So does everyone have phones? Are they allowed to have phones? You have to hide them? No. He didn't have phone, but there was, it was contraband. We had ways of bringing it in. Um, we had officers that uh, would bring it in. So then, you know, there, there, there were some people that was their job. Like I had a person, his job was, his whole thing was to make sure that he holds my phone. And when I need it, he'd bring it to me. And he just stands there, watch the officer, make sure that, and then if they start moving, he grabs the phone and just walks off so that I don't get busted with the phone. Well, so the, there's just, But there were actually officers that were in on the deal, helping get the phones in? Yeah, yeah. Is that common everywhere? The officers are in on the Yeah, board? I imagine. Yeah, it's it's not. Yeah, like, I mean, I've been in prison. They always say it's the, the family members bringing it in. Family members cannot bring it into the prison with going to the metal detectors. It's officers bringing it in. So, And why do they bring it in? They make money off it. I mean, each, I mean, you imagine back then, what were those uh, Virgin Mobile flip phones? I can't remember how much they cost out here. $25, $30? Yeah. Uh, one of those were able to go for about 600, 650 bucks. Wow. And, uh, okay. Yeah. And and how do you get the money to pay for that? Does your family pay them or how does that work? Well, I mean, some people had different connections. Like I, I had somebody out here, it's called a runner out here. And 
she just collected my Western Union money. She always had money for me. Then I had one of my other buddies that was also locked up with me. So he was also good with uh, getting my Western Union money. So he holds it. And if I need money to be transferred or money to be taken here, then so we could always reroute money and there's always money for them to pick up. That's an education all in of itself. Maybe your next book. Yeah, it's a whole pretty elaborate. Uh, you can share the prison economics uh, in your next <laughs> book. So then you, you, you actually get the opportunity to go before parole board. So tell us how that, uh, by the way, you did some other cool stuff in prison. I just want to point out, you joined a creative writing program. You joined programs where you could uh, volunteer. Uh, you worked in special Olympics for kids that, so you, you started finding ways to be productive, which is great. And then you, how do you get before the parole board? Since I had a 15 year to life sentence, they brought me up on the, you're, you're able to go to the parole board one year before your parole date. And then they determine if you're suitable and if you're not, then they could give a, a, a parole date now anywhere between three years to 15 years. They say, oh, you're not suitable, come back in three years or come back in 15 years. So it's really up to them to decide on that spectrum. Yeah, after you know my Pharaoh and the razor wire moment and, and after uh, grieving my father's death, I began to look into how can I make an impact on this yard? And that's when I started getting involved with groups. I helped create some groups and suddenly I felt more alive for once than I ever had, more than even when I was running in a gang or even when I was hustling in prison. This is like, I saw such meaning and purpose in helping other men around me. And for once it made me feel good inside. So uh, I was really involved with getting involved with those programs and then I went to the parole board the first time in 2013. They gave me a five-year denial. They said, come back in five years. It was based mostly or solely on my prison write-ups and all those things. And then I filed this uh, petition to advance my hearing at a, about a year uh, and a couple months after, which then they granted. And they said, you know what? Um, you've done, like I, I, I kind of laid out, like this is what I've been up to since my parole denial. This is the, what the board asked me to look into. I think I've addressed it and I respectfully request to be brought back early. And they can, you can do one of those requests per denial. The common belief in prison was you have to wait at least three years. I don't know where that came from, but you know, in prison, that's another type of culture where men hear one person or men hear several people and suddenly it becomes, oh, that's common knowledge. Everyone knows that. And I like, this doesn't make sense. I don't see anything that says we have to wait three years. So I filed mine at one year, two months. They granted it, brought me back into the parole board, um, asked what I had been up to since then. And then they suddenly told me, we feel that you're no longer a threat to society and you're now suitable for parole. So then I was released in November of 2015. How many days, weeks, or months was it between them saying you were not no longer dangerous to society before they let you go? Uh, 150 days. So the standard is, because after they say you're suitable for parole, they have to check your my parole plans they had to make sure that they did everything properly if there was notifications for the next of kin of or victims and everything like that and then the governor still had to sign off on it. so those next 150 days i saw a lot of men that the few men that were able to be found suitable before me they lived those next 150 days on eggshells and i didn't want to live like that and i, I knew intentionally i have 150 days this is my 150 days to began mourning and grieving the loss of these friendships that I've built over the years because I most likely will never see these men ever again. And, you know, we're not going to be connected like 
or life will never be together. So it's another form of grieving. And so I made sure I wanted to be present and just, you know, just remember those, these amazing, amazing human beings that I'm leaving behind, these amazing friendships that I built over the years and just being present with it. Uh, great advice. As you were talking about getting involved with other organizations and I find in so many scenarios, the best way to find hope, the best way to get unstuck is just to serve someone. It doesn't mean you don't have to go yes. start a million dollar nonprofit. It's, it could be giving someone food who needs it. You can clearly tell on the side of the road or, or helping a family member that, that you, or even just giving them a phone call to check on them, but serving others and, and getting outside of yourself, I've often found is just the best way forward in 99.9% of scenarios. So it's really amazing. I mean, it makes so much sense the way you explain it. But for those of us who have never been in prison, to see that even in those darkest moments, darkest places, darkest times on in life, that you can find um, the freedom within by changing your mindset. We've only got a, a few moments left here, a couple minutes, but I do want to re-encourage people to go check out your book, Spare on the Razor Wire. It's an incredible story. Uh, you need to buy the book, support Quan and what he's doing to help other people, whether they're coming out of prison, which he literally does help people in that scenario, or people who are sort of in their own prison of their mind trying to break free. Uh, this book will show them the way to do that. Now, Quan, I got to ask you, the moment they said you are no longer a danger to society and you know that you're now freedom is within your grasp. What does that feel like? Oh, my God, I broke down and I cried. Like this to see like man, these people like in a weird sense, say I could fit back into society. Uh, yeah, I was, I, I, I broke down and cried right there. And even though I, I, I was hoping and, and of course everything in me wanted to come back and see my family members. I was unsure if this could ever happen, but yeah. Got it. And I'll let, uh, there's some really, a uh, really cool story about you going to the airport, uh, in the book, but I'll leave that a suspense for those to read the book, spare on the razor wire. Uh, tell us what you're up to now, uh, besides buying the book. Uh, which will support you. Uh, tell us about what you're doing with Devi Defy Ventures. Oh, one thing I'd like to mention about the book, though, is that every copy that is purchased this week, I'm going to match it and donate it to somebody that's incarcerated. So Defy Ventures is a nonprofit that helps men and women with criminal histories to basically transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. Uh, I was involved with them in prison. I continue to be involved with them after I got out. And that is how actually uh, I was able to build my first company six months after I came home. I still have that company, but today I work as the post-release program manager for DeFi. Uh, they expanded up to Southern California and asked if I would be willing to help other men and women that are coming home in their reentry journey. So that was about two, two and a half years ago. And I've been in that capacity since. That's excellent. Well, uh, congratulations on uh, where life's led you. I, I commend you in your healing process. I know it hasn't been easy as you've taken responsibility for your actions. And, and there's some great stories about that in the book as well. But an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Your story undoubtedly will change an awful lot of lives. And those of you who help support the book, buy the book, Spare on the Razor Wire this week. Every copy you buy, a copy goes to someone incarcerated, which can help them change your life as well. So you will be part of the solution. So thanks so much, Quan, for joining me. I really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for joining us here on Now to Next. We will see you next time. Take care. Thanks, Quan. Okay. Thank you so much, Nick. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.